Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, I want to start my sermon today uh, with a confession. I'm partial. I'm partial. And I'm not just partial to one thing. I'm partial to a few things. I am partial to my spouse, Amanda. I am married to a wonderful person. I am partial to my children, Hannah and Noah. I have great kids. I am partial to this congregation, Asbury United Methodist Church. I am so grateful to serve as one of the pastors of this congregation. I'm also partial to my spiritual heritage as a United Methodist. Those of you who know me know, and I've shared my story in the past, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. I was baptized when I was a baby, just a one-year-old baby, in the United Methodist Church. I received this Bible, which has fallen apart, my very first Bible when I was seven years old in the United Methodist Church. I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, my Redeemer and my friend in the United Methodist Church. I was confirmed in the United Methodist Church. I received my call to pastoral ministry when I was 16 years old, and I was scared and I was confused in the United Methodist Church. After high school, I went on to attend a United Methodist college and a United Methodist seminary, and now for the past 11 years, I have served as a pastor in this denomination. Now, folks, don't mishear me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not naive. I am well aware of the fact that we are not a perfect church. And by the way, if you're looking for the perfect church, you're going to be looking for a very long time. I guarantee it because the perfect church does not exist. Amen? Amen. I also fully believe and celebrate that God is at work in other churches, other denominations. But at the same time, I cherish being a United Methodist. But maybe you're here in worship today and you're wondering why that is. Hey, Chris, what makes Methodism different from any other church? What makes Methodism unique? What makes Methodism stand out? Or maybe what you know about the United Methodist Church these days is what you're seeing on the news about local congregations disaffiliating, going independent, joining a new denomination. Why, in the midst of so much contention right now, such diversity of thought, varying interpretations of Scripture, should anybody be excited about being a United Methodist? I'm going to share why today. And I'm going to do so highlighting the aspects of our church that I appreciate most. If you've ever been curious about the DNA and the core beliefs of Methodism, I hope that you'll listen carefully, because I believe that this sermon is for you. Now, Methodism started about 300 years ago under the leadership of two brothers. Do you remember their names? John and Charles Wesley. I believe we have John and Charles Wesley up here in this graphic. Uh, John is to the left. Charles is to the right. John was born in 1703. Uh, Charles, his younger brother, was born four years later in 1707. Now, John and Charles Wesley were born in England, 
to their parents. Anybody know what their parents' names were? Samuel and Susanna. Very good. Samuel and Susanna. Uh, their dad, Samuel, was actually a pastor in the Church of England. Now, many of you know that the Church of England during this period of time was the established church in Britain. Of course, it is technically still the established church in Britain, but this was especially true 300 years ago, back in the 1700s. Uh, if you were somebody back then who went to church, if you identified as a Christian, if you considered yourself a Christ follower, there was a strong possibility that you were part of the Church of England, with few exceptions. And so John and Charles Wesley, they grew up in the Church of England, and at some point, they both felt a call to pastoral ministry. They wanted to be pastors in the Church of England, just like their father Samuel, and their mom Susanna, she was also very influential in all this. Uh, she homeschooled them, along with her other children. And even though there were many aspects of the Church of England that John and Charles Wesley liked, and there were many aspects that they appreciated, overall, they felt that the Church of England was in desperate need of revival. Too many Christians, they said, were just going through the motions. Yeah, they would do religious things, they would go to worship services, but it was just a routine. Their heart wasn't into it. They weren't excited about their faith. They weren't pursuing God. They weren't seeking holiness. They weren't practicing spiritual disciplines. They weren't sharing God's love with other people. And so as young adults, John and Charles Wesley, these two brothers, along with some of their friends, they started the Methodist movement as a way to revive and bring life and bring energy and bring zest to the Church of England. But what happened over time is they ended up starting a whole new denomination. That denomination here in America and in other parts of the world, it has gone through a lot of various forms, but it is known today as the United Methodist Church. And so our spiritual roots, our spiritual heritage as United Methodists, and of course Asbury is a United Methodist congregation, our spiritual heritage and roots goes all the way back to John and Charles Wesley and this movement that they started. And really, what undergirded and fueled and drove this movement was this theology. Can you all say that word with me? Theology. What is theology? In a nutshell, theology is what we believe about God, what we teach about God, what we hold to be true about God. And a key feature, this is very important, a key feature of Methodist theology is this. God's love and thus God's offer of salvation is not restricted. It's not simply available to some nor is it simply available to most. Instead, it's available to who? It's available to all. And folks, it is impossible to really understand and appreciate this aspect of Methodist theology without also understanding what was going on historically during this period 300 years ago. You see, there was a teaching that was popular during the period of the Wesleys. In fact, it's still popular in some churches today in expressions of Christianity. Uh, this teaching is called Calvinism. Calvinism. Uh, how many of you have heard of Calvinism? How many of you are familiar with Calvinism? Some of you are. Uh, listen, Calvinism has gone through a lot of evolution over the years. I do want to be clear about this. And so some churches today, and maybe some of you came from a church that taught Calvinism, some churches today subscribe to a modified version of it. I'm going to talk about Calvinism in this sermon I don't intend to be uncharitable in any way, but I am going to talk about Calvinism in this sermon as it was being promoted and made popular during the period of the Wesleys. The Wesleys didn't subscribe to this teaching, but they did respond to it. So Calvinism is named in honor 
of the French theologian John Calvin, lived back in the 1500s. And one of the core beliefs of Calvinism is that God is sovereign over everything. God reigns supreme over everything. Now, of course, I would agree with that. You probably would agree with that too. Calvinists take it a step further. Because God is sovereign over everything, they say, God predetermines everything. God decides everything in advance. In fact, God decided everything in advance before this world was even made, before he spoke it into being. God even decided in advance who was going to say yes and who was going to say no to his love and his offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. So let's say, for example, you're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, the reason you're a Christian is not that you chose to be a Christian out of your own free will, your own volition, because free will doesn't exist. Free will is an illusion. It's a made-up concept according to Calvinism because God has predetermined everything. You're incapable of choosing God. No, the only reason you're a Christian according to Calvinism is God predetermined that you would be a Christian one day, that you would give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. And on the flip side, if you're not a Christian, well, the reason you're not a Christian is God never intended for you to be a Christian. God predetermined that you would never be a Christian. Now, to be clear, there's a lot more to Calvinism than we have time to get into in this message, and I'm always happy to sit down and have a conversation with anybody who wants to talk more about this. But Calvinism is based on a reading of certain Bible passages, especially from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, where Paul uses the phrase, the elect, the elect. Calvinists read that phrase, the elect, and they say, well, that phrase refers to the people that God has elected for salvation from before the foundation of the world. Now, granted, not all Christians read Scripture this way. This is how Calvinists tend to read these words. And so, if you're not a Christian... If you reject salvation, if you reject God, well, that's because God never included you among the elect. And here's where this really gets messy. This teaching also espouses something called limited atonement, which means that when Jesus came and died on the cross, Jesus didn't die for everybody. His blood was only spilled for the elect, so that none of his blood was spilled in vain. John and Charles Wesley. We're familiar with this teaching. You ever heard of George Whitfield before? He was a famous missionary. They knew George Whitfield. He taught it. He promoted it. What did John and Charles Wesley say to this teaching? They gave an emphatic no. Not even a relaxed no. Not a laid-back no. They gave an emphatic no. God's love, God's offer of salvation is for everybody. It's for everybody. A popular passage of Scripture that the Wesleys would visit again and again is found in John chapter 3. And as some of you may recall, in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus has a conversation with a Pharisee. Do you remember his name? Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at nighttime, probably because he's afraid of what the other Pharisees will think if he comes to Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus at nighttime, and he asks Jesus a whole slew of questions about God. And during this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus utters a line that is so famous and well-known you probably know what it is. In fact, you can't go to a football game nowadays without somebody holding up a sign that lists this Bible verse. What Bible verse is that? John 3:16. How does it go? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not die but have everlasting life. For God so loved the what? 
not for God so love the elect, not for God so love the people that he predestined for salvation from before the foundation of the world, not for God so love the church, but for God so love the world. The Greek word that is used here for world in John 3.16 is cosmos. Cosmos, it's where we get our word cosmology. It refers to this whole universe and every single person in it. Folks, here's what it comes down to. God's heart beats for all humanity. God's heart beats for all humanity. Whether you're somebody who receives God, whether you're somebody who rejects God, whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, God's heart beats for you. When Jesus came into this world, he came for everybody. When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died for everybody, no exceptions and no exclusions. United Methodists are convinced that God's universal love is the overarching message of the Bible. Listen with me uh, to what it says here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, this is the Apostle Peter, who was the disciple of Jesus, writing. He says, The Lord does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Folks, who does the Lord want to repent, turn from their sin? Everyone. Everyone. Uh, Charles Wesley, the younger brother of Char or, uh, John. Charles Wesley was a hymn writer over the course of his life. He wrote more than 6,000 hymns. Uh, hymns that we still sing today. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Are you familiar with that hymn? We sing it every Christmas time. Charles Wesley wrote that. Christ the Lord is risen today. We sing that every Easter. Oh, 4,000 tongues to sing. We sang that earlier. Well, another hymn of Charles Wesley that we sang earlier is a communion hymn called Come Sinners to the Gospel Feast. Come Sinners to the Gospel Feast. I want to invite you to listen again to the first two stanzas of this hymn. Come sinners to the gospel feast. Let what? Every soul be Jesus' guest. You need what? Not one be left behind, for God hath bid who? All humankind. He says in the second stanza, Sent by my Lord, on you I call. He's speaking to us, on you I call. The invitation is to who? The invitation is to all. Come all the world, come sinner thou. All things in Jesus Christ are ready now, you sense the urgency there. I had a professor in seminary who insisted that when Charles Wesley wrote this hymn uh, back in 1747, he was doing it tongue-in-cheek. He was doing this to refute Calvinist teaching that Jesus only intended to save the elect. The conviction that God and Jesus loves and wants a relationship with everybody is at the heart, the very core of what it means to be a United Methodist. There's another teaching that's intimately tied up with all this, inextricably bound up, called prevening grace. You've heard me talk about prevening grace in previous sermons. Prevenient is an old Latin word. We don't use the word prevenient very much nowadays in the 21st century. It's an old Latin word uh, that means to come before. Prevenient grace refers to the grace of God that comes before us. Prevenient grace refers to the grace of God that precedes us, the grace of God that goes ahead of us, the grace of God that is present in our lives from the very start. Even before you and I knew about God, even before you and I had an awareness of God, even before you and I were told about God, God through the Holy Spirit in some mysterious way was moving in our lives. The psalmist talks about prevenient grace. He doesn't call it this name, but he talks about prevenient grace in Psalm 71, verse 6. Check it out. 
He says, yes, you. He's talking to God, the Lord. You have been with me from birth. From my mother's womb, you have cared for me. No wonder I am always praising you. Folks, think about this. Even if you didn't grow up in a religious household, and I know some of you didn't grow up in a religious household, you didn't grow up in a Christian household, even if you didn't, there has never been a moment or a time or a season in which God hasn't been with you. That's prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is our theological authority to baptize babies. Some churches don't baptize babies. We baptize babies, and we do it proudly. We're glad about that. We celebrate that because we believe in some mysterious way that we don't fully understand, that we can't fully articulate that God is moving in this baby's life. I'll never forget when Amanda and I had Hannah and Noah baptized. Uh, they're in preschool now. They're going to start kindergarten later on this fall. They're five years old. They were three months old when they were baptized. It was actually their first Sunday in worship since they had been born. They had spent a month in the NICU after they were born, and so we were very careful about bringing them back to events in person. This was all before COVID. And uh, so we took about three months before we had them in worship, and they were baptized that day. Now, when they were baptized, um, I didn't want to be a pastor primarily. I wanted to be a dad. And so I invited my friend and my boss, my superintendent, Baba Shong, to preside over the ceremony. We have a picture of this up here on the screen. Now, those of you who have ever seen or been a part of an infant baptism know that sometimes babies get fussy. Amen? Uh, and Hannah that day, not so much Noah, but Hannah that day, she was especially fussy. She was really fussy when Bob put the water on her head. And so she was yelling, and she was screaming. She wasn't having any of it. And so Bob said nice and loud, Hannah Rosa, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And she kept yelling, and she kept screaming. And then he quickly added, whether you like it or not. Just like you all did, the congregation that day was roaring with laughter. But I continued to think about what Bob said. Yeah, that comment's funny. It's not just funny. It's profoundly theological. Folks, sometimes you and I, let's be honest, sometimes you and I try to fight and resist God's love, don't we? God doesn't stop loving us. God doesn't stop chasing us. God doesn't stop pursuing us. God doesn't stop coming after us. Hannah didn't choose to be loved by God, did she? Just like she didn't choose for her mother and I to love her. Hannah didn't choose to be called God's child. God called her his child. Now, it's true that Hannah has free will. Calvinists may not believe in free will. We do believe in it. We believe that free will is a sign of our pervading grace, uh, that God gives us free will. He gives us that ability to reject him, to receive him. So it's true that Hannah has free will. She can choose whether she's going to embrace her identity as God's child or reject it. But listen to me. Even if she rejects it, and man and I pray that that never happens, but even if she rejects it one day, God is not going to stop loving her. Those of you who are parents know how strong your love is for your child. Even if your child rejects you, doesn't want anything to do with you, is estranged from you, well, God is our perfect heavenly father, isn't he? God is our perfect heavenly father. He loves us even when we don't love him. God loves us so much that his grace is present in our lives from the get-go. 
And God's deepest desire, more than anything else in this whole universe, is for us to become aware of that grace, to respond to it by becoming disciples of Jesus Christ who walk in the way that leads to life. And this is where the church comes in. This is where you and I as the body of Christ come in. As the United Methodists, we understand that the church's job is not to bring God to people. If we think it's our job, our assignment to bring God to people, I got news for us, it's not. We are sorely mistaken. Rather, the church's job is to tell people, announce to people about the God who is already there. The God who is already moving. The one who has claimed and called them in Jesus Christ. My all-time favorite Disney movie is The Lion King. And if you're not a fan of The Lion King, I'm not sure if we could be friends. It's a great movie. Came out back in 1994, which seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, the Lion King tells the story of this young lion cub. What's his name? Simba. And Simba's the son of his father. What's his father's name? Mufasa, played by James Earl Jones, the voice. And Mufasa is this beautiful, majestic lion, this strong, mighty lion, and he's the king of the Pride Lands. And Simba, his son, he is next in line to become king. And by the way, Simba's really excited about being king. There's a whole song about this. He just can't wait to be king. Simba has an uncle named Scar, Mufasa's younger brother. Scar resents Simba. He resents Mufasa. He can't stand them. He wants to become king. So what does he do? Spoiler alert comes up with this evil and maniacal plot. He has Mufasa killed in a stampede. And then he leads Simba to believe that Simba's responsible for his father's death. He tells Simba, get away from here. Go away. So Simba runs away. Gets away from the Pride Lands. He joins up with this meerkat and this warthog named Timon and Pumbaa, who become his friends. And Timon and Pumbaa, they mean well. They have good intentions. But they take Simba down the wrong path. What does Simba start doing? Well, Simba starts eating bugs. He lazes around. He doesn't hunt. He doesn't do the things that lions are meant to be doing. Worst of all, he doesn't claim his rightful place as king. But then toward the end of the movie, there is this eccentric baboon who shows up to him. What's his name? Rafiki, right? We have Rafiki and Simba up here on the screen. And in his own kooky way, Rafiki reminds Simba who he is as king. Folks, listen to me. This is an imperfect analogy, but just go with me here. That's what the church does. The church goes up to people, and the church says to people, oh my gosh, do you know who you are? Seriously, do, do you know who you are? You are royalty. You are a son or a daughter of the king of kings. You are God's beloved child. You're not called to live in sin and brokenness just like Simba wasn't called to eat bugs. You're called to claim your place in the family of God. And the way that you do this is by receiving Jesus Christ and becoming his disciple. I love what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession, as a result, you could show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. 
We who have responded to God's invitation to new life in Jesus Christ, we are those who have been led out of the darkness, out of sin, out of brokenness, into God's wonderful, marvelous light. And now we're called to lead others into that same light. As we say at Asbury at the end of every service, our mission is what? To know the love of Jesus Christ? Pass it on. We pass on his love by proclaiming his love, by proclaiming Jesus. And I make this promise to you, so long as this church exists, we will do nothing but proclaim Jesus Christ. Amen? So long as this church exists, we will do nothing but proclaim Jesus Christ. But listen, Jesus doesn't only bring us into life with God. He doesn't only enable us to claim our place in the family of God. But Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he also begins the process of renewing us, transforming us into the very people that God has always intended for us to be. This is part of our salvation. We call it sanctification. And yet, for whatever reason, so many churches, when talking about salvation, they overlook sanctification. They water salvation down. They say, well, here's what salvation is. Accept Jesus into your heart so that one day when you die, you can go to heaven. That's not all there is. Listen to what Wesley himself says. This is John Wesley in his own words. By salvation, I mean not barely, according to the vulgar notion, deliverance from hell or going to heaven, but a present deliverance. As Charles Wesley would say, um, he breaks the bounds of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. It's a present deliverance from sin, a restoration of the soul to its primitive health, its original purity, a recovery of the divine nature, the renewal of our souls after the image of God in righteousness and true holiness and justice, mercy, and truth. I guess Wesley didn't like commas because he doesn't use them there. That's a lot. Here's what it means. Salvation isn't simply about going to heaven when we die. Salvation is about God getting heaven inside of us right now, in this moment, and us participating with God by grace in this process. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Notice, God is at work, but we also work it out, enabling you, Paul says, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Working out our salvation means growing in holiness. Love of God, love of neighbor. That's what holiness is. It's not the sanctimonious, I'm better than you. No, it's love of God and love of neighbor. How do we grow in holiness? So glad you asked that question. We grow in holiness. <laughs> we grow in holiness, according to the Wesleys, through the means of grace. What are the means of grace? The means of grace are the ordinary channels that God uses to infuse us with grace. And this grace empowers us for holy living. There are two categories to the means of grace. Works of piety, works of mercy. Works of piety are inward. They include practices like prayer, going to a worship service like we're doing right now, receiving Holy Communion, studying the Bible, reading books of divinity. And then there are works of mercy. The works of mercy are external, the things that are focused on other people, the things that we do for our neighbor, uh, such as serving the poor and needy, looking after the sick, visiting uh, those who are imprisoned, the means of grace are not how we earn salvation. I want to be clear about this. The means of grace are not how we earn salvation. The means of grace are the channels that God uses so we can grow in salvation. Because we're called to grow in salvation, aren't we? You ever heard of Bono before? The lead singer of U2, the Irish rock band? I love what Bono says. He says, your nature, 
This is up here on the screen. Your nature is a hard thing to change. It takes time. I have heard of people who have life-changing, miraculous turnarounds. People set free from addiction after a single prayer. Relationships saved where both parties let go and let God. But it was not like that for me, Bono says. For all that, I was lost, I am found. It is probably more accurate to say, I was really lost. I'm a, little, I'm a little less so at the moment, and then a little less, and a little less again. That, to me, is the spiritual life. The slow reworking and rebooting the computer at regular intervals. Reading the small print of the service manual. For us, that would be the Bible. It has slowly rebuilt me in a better image. It is taking years, though, and it is not over yet. I don't know if Bono's a United Methodist. I think he should be. Because what he says represents our teaching. We're on a journey. All of us are. And we're not on a journey in our own silos, are we? We're on this journey with one another. Which leads me to the last aspect of United Methodism that I appreciate, that I quickly want to highlight. We are a deeply connectional church. When you join a United Methodist congregation like Asbury, you automatically become part of a worldwide network of churches. And this network of churches supports shared ministries, ministries that no one congregation can support, but all these congregations working together, yeah, we could support them. Ministries like the Florida United Methodist Children's Home, which for more than 100 years has been helping vulnerable children. We're taking up a special offering today. Campus ministries like the Central Florida Wesley Foundation where college students grow in their relationship with God. Camping ministries like the Warren Willis Camp, our denominational camp here in Florida, where so many students make a first-time commitment to Jesus, they hear a call to pastoral ministry. Or disaster ministries like the United Methodist Committee on Relief. This shared network allows these ministries to thrive and flourish and grow and impact the world. Because the truth is, God loves this world. As we said earlier, God loves this world. We will never fully understand or appreciate how much God loves this world. But by grace, we could be a part of what God is doing to redeem and restore it. As I said earlier, God is at work in other churches. God is at work in other denominations. There is no question about that. But today, this morning, I am thankful to be a United Methodist. For our spiritual heritage, our core beliefs, even in the midst of diversity of thought, I pray that these are the things that unite us, the things that we can hold on to, the things that take us into the future. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, you have always been at work in this world. There's no doubt about that. But I do believe that 300 years ago, you raised up the Methodist to make a certain kind of impact in the Christian faith. I appreciate these aspects of our heritage that we've talked about. God, remind us Help us to understand how much you do, in fact, love this world. God, I know that all of us here in this room, we don't agree on everything. But I pray that we can agree on the things that we talked about today. May all of us be passionate 
about sharing your love with others, making a difference, making an impact, so that more and more people may come to understand their worth and their value in you and how in Jesus Christ you intend for them to have new life. I pray all these things in his name. Amen.